0: My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is
1: devoted,
2: resilient,
1: dazzling, giving,
0: vivacious, extraordinary.
2: I just felt so happy when I got to spend time with her. It was almost like that feeling of a celebrity. It was so special to me to be able to see her. It's all I wanted to do. She'll know what to do. This
1: is Our Mothers, Ourselves, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. In the few dozen episodes I've made since starting this podcast, I've pretty much stuck to one big ground rule. The focus is on great mothers, and only great mothers. You can read more in the show notes about what made me decide to break that rule for this episode, so I'll just cut to the chase and say that when the writer Ariel Levy was a little girl in Manhattan, her life was a freight train of trauma. And then a guardian angel named Rita Waterman showed up. Rita was in her 20s at the time, and her life was full and rich and good. But she still found the time to be there for Ariel. Ariel is now a grown woman, and her memoir, An Abbreviated Life, Describes her childhood in prose that's so beautiful and so compelling, it's almost impossible to stop reading, even when the story is hard to take. So, this week, instead of talking about Ariel's biological mother, Ariel and I are celebrating the woman she describes as her soul mother. Ariel Levy, I'd like to thank you so much for coming onto Our Mothers Ourselves to talk not about your biological mother, but about the woman you consider to be your surrogate mother, Rita Waterman. That's right. Thank you. So I've been thinking a lot about how to approach this one. It's complicated, and I'm going to explain it to listeners, and then we'll go from there. So you have—just um, correct me, stop me if I got sure. it wrong. Um, and by the way, I devoured your book. Oh, I just, absolutely devoured it. And the New York Times called it oddly mesmerizing, which I couldn't, it's like you cannot turn away from this book. I'm so glad it's
2: oddly mesmerizing. I wouldn't just want mesmerizing.
1: Your book, An Abbreviated Life, is about your biological mother. Let's explain just enough about your situation as a child that set you up to be receptive to
2: Rita. Okay, so... I was uh, raised in New York City and my mother's a poet and my father and my mother were married for a brief period of time. They got divorced when I was very young and I had um, a woman who was looking after me named Kiki who died when I was five years old on the plane. This is all sort of preamble to right. Where Rita comes in. We're
1: set, but, we're we're setting up your trauma, <laughs> let's put it that way. And Kiki didn't just die on the plane. You were sitting right next to her, right?
2: That's right. The reason I'm mentioning that is because of of attachments. After my mother and father got divorced, my father met Rita. I believe it was probably around 1970. I was born in 1968. Um at a party. And he was going through a divorce and they, she was working, I think at the time at the Saturday Evening Post that might've been wrong as an editor. And, um, she was, she, I'm just giving you lots of details, which will fall into place, but she helped start Ms. Magazine with Gloria Steinem and Rita was warm and cheerful and affectionate and silly. And, and I immediately fell in love with her. Even as a three year old, I just felt her goodness. There was like a chemical tra- attraction to them to, to being around her.
1: Uh-huh. And is there anything tangible you can point us to about her, or is it all kind of intangible?
2: I think children are very intuitive about um grown-ups and their ability to be present with them. Uh but I just felt that, that sense of her being attentive to me in a way that I was, I was uh happy. I mean, it sounds so, you know, it was a very meaningful kind of attention and I wasn't getting that anywhere else. And I could intuit that she wanted what was best for me, that she wasn't focused on her own needs. I could probably right. intuit that very early because I had such a there was a lot of trauma going on at the, at my home with my own mother. And so she was kind of an oasis from the psychological warfare.
1: And so. just to give uh we're not gonna dwell on your own mother, but just to give listeners a sense of what the nature of the trauma was, can you paint one scene for us, perhaps from the book?
2: Oh the whole book. The whole book
1: the it, whole uh, book. Right, I know. Yeah,
2: I mean it was a very I I, I had um it's, gosh, it's so hard to distill it down, but I would say that there was no consistency and the moods were so unpredictable. And um, your
1: biological mother.
2: Yeah. And right. also a, a lot kids. of emotional turmoil. Nothing meant anything, which is right. really frequent with a narcissistic parent that the, their needs will always come first. And so you're not really ever. You're, you're never safe emotionally. So I think that was where, just to turn it back to Rita, I felt, I felt so safe with her because, um, I wasn't constantly in harm's way in that sense, physically, emotionally, you know, on, on every level, I just felt a calm with her. Mm -hmm. We did things like she would play Candyland with me and she would get down on the floor and lie on, you know, we would lie on the carpet and play this board game or we would make cookies or we would listen to records. I mean, she introduced me to free to be you and me.
1: It was like an angel would come down periodically and just be there for you and fill this role for you. But what struck me when I was reading the book is that she, you guys did not spend day and night together. You saw her maybe once a week. And what you said in the book is that that was enough. Explain that to me.
2: Yes. She, um, so our time together was very episodic. Uh, She was not, I mean, the situation was I was living at home with my mother and... I mean, when I say at home, I, I was living alone. I'm an only child with her in the apartment and Rita was in the picture. She would come over to the house and she... At that point, it wasn't really because of her relationship with my father because my father was in his own on his own path. She would come and have visits with me and these visits were like you said once a week but sometimes she would take me on the weekends with her to Coney Island or Fire Island or I just felt so happy when I got to spend time with her it was it's almost like that feeling of a celebrity (laughs) you know like she she, it was so special to me to be able to see her it's all Mm -hmm. I wanted to do
1: and what I'm so impressed by first of all I want to say you got lucky that you had Rita Because otherwise, who knows how your adult psyche would have reacted to everyone around
2: you, which was already fragile enough. I really was lucky because in later life, when I became an adult and I started to do research about the changing brain of children who are exposed a lot uh, to trauma, chronic trauma, that That what saves them is really having a person who they can connect to in a real way. And that connection doesn't have to be around the clock. It can be a teacher. It can be another relative. And in my case, it was Rita.
1: Mm. So now that we've established this good soul,
2: Rita, let's talk about her life. What do you know about her life? I'll tell you about her. Can I just say one thing that I think is really important to say about her in my life? When my father left, I was five years old. He went, he moved back to Thailand and Rita wrote to him every day, typed letters um, about what was going on in my life and what I was being exposed to. And these letters were put into a you know into a typewriter back in the old days, nineteen seventies, where people would put carbon behind the paper. So she kept copies of them. When I was older, and this formed the basis for my book. Um, I was get, she, we when I was in my late thirties or early forties. She gave me all of the letters that they were these meticulous dispatches that all began you know, with Dear Harvey and really detailed about, you know, what happened during the day or if I went to the Hayden planetarium or my fish had died or, you know, they were just like incredibly, uh it was like an archive of my childhood. And she, and, and of course it did record a lot of the, the abuse and trauma as well. So she did that. I mean, it was remarkable. Mm. It's like an act of humanity that, um, really speaks to who she she is.
1: I read all about what Rita's... And there's very... By the way, there is very little about Rita Waterman, um, both on Google and in the literature. So I'm going to really depend on you to help me piece her life together. Let's go back to the very beginning of what you know about her life, like where she was born and what her parents did and where they came
2: from. Who is she? Who is Uh, Rita Waterman? (laughs) So... You know, and I will just say that the reason there's probably not a huge amount of um material on her is because she never really cared to be in the spotlight. She was such a hard worker behind the scenes. She did editorial production, which, you know, kind of keeps everything going and layouts and all of that. You know, she did the whole shebang at Ms., and she's Italian. Her married name is Waterman. And she's an Italian Catholic whose maternal grandmother came to the United States uh, through Ellis Island. Mm. And I know that her father and mother wed in 1934. It was a, you know, a loving Italian-American community in Astoria, Queens. So she came, you know, obviously from immigrants. Right. And her mother was the rock and her father, as she said to me, jumped ship, which is what they were told, uh, began working like as a dishwasher in New York City restaurants. And he was a busboy and a waiter. When I say jump ship, I mean from Italy, but mostly what Rita has talked to me about was her mother. Um, because her father died and her mother had to work so she grew up really with her mother as the the person who really took care of everyone and her grandmother no not lived with them she has a sister and a brother you know they were not a wealthy i mean they grew up like a working class right mm. but i remember her telling me that her mother worked in the coat room of her uncle's restaurant on 48th street in new york city handling coats and umbrellas and hats for 25-cent tips. And then she worked lunch and cocktail hour and dinner and took the subway and a bus ride back. You
1: know, it was very grueling. Mm. And it sounds like her mother might have been a provider and a generous spirit much the way Rita was.
2: Is that the sense you get? A caretaker, yeah. Definitely. I think, and one of the very big beats in Rita's life was that you have to think of her as being, you know, she was raised as a Catholic. Her mother was very religious and she went to college at Marymount Manhattan College where she graduated. And she always had a job on the summers and she had planned on being a teacher because as she told me in the 60s in her world that there were just not that many options for women. They could be teachers, they could be nurses, they could be housewives, secretaries. So, you know, this was before the feminist movement. And also uh, the picture I've seen of her, this beautiful
1: photograph of you and her um, together. She
2: is beautiful. I know. She was a bombshell. I mean, gorgeous, right? Not that that matters, but it's quite striking. Well, the thing that matters is that she never commodified it. It was not, you know, that wasn't her currency. I don't even think she really knew how beautiful she was.
1: Yeah, just the the, there is a beauty there. This is a cliche,
2: but it really radiates from
1: within. Right.
2: I mean, I, I remember now as I'm talking to you, she told me this story that had to do with someone had approached her to be a model. She certainly could have been a, you know, top model, but she looked at that person like, why? Why would I want to do that when, no, you know, like to be, it just, it, it could, it was inconceivable to her that she would devote her life to that profession when she could do something with her brain. <laughs> Mm-hmm. so when she was 25 she got married who did so she marry she married some, some guy Char- named waterman yes some, some guy, guy named waterman. water
1: water person
2: <laughs> no water person is
1: what um i know well, i'm kidding right. oh, Okay. yeah well, well let's explain water person is what the ms magazine crowd started to call her that's right, right. and right gloria steinem still calls
2: rita water person <laughs> love it and charlie waterman was her first well her own, her only husband. And they got married when they were 25 and they stayed together uh two years. But she told me that it should have been two months, but because she's Italian Catholic, <laughs> she's, they stick it out. Did they have it
1: annulled then? And did she say what she realized about the marriage that was not
2: working? Yeah, they did. Yes to both. And um she just, I think, did not want to be, did not want, knew that she couldn't have that life. Mm, okay. So then she
1: um, meets your dad at a party after splitting with Charlie. And right. did do you have a, what is your very first memory of her in your
2: life? Oh, my very first memory of her, my father brought her over. Or brought me over to meet her, and she opened the door of her apartment. She also lived on Seventy Ninth Street, which was coincidence. And total there I, coincidence, right? Total coincidence. Okay. And and I remember looking up at her and seeing this. Per, she reminded me of a of Wonder Woman. <laughs> you know, it was really like with, she had long black hair, and she was probably. Having pigtails at the time, and she had a cat and named Miz. So this must have been later. I mean, you know, the, my memory of when I the very first time I met her is limited because I was so young. But I have, I have a feeling, a sense of how I was responding to her with an immediate bond. We just had that bond immediately. Mm. Uh, and and so, i want, I wanted her? to say about the sur- the sense of surrogate mother, because everything that she was giving to me, whether it was time or attention, all of that were the kind of nutrients that a mother gives to a child. So it was planting this seed of connection where I always felt, you know, um, she was there for me. And that psychological safety net is very maternal. Like that thats that's what most mothers do want their children to feel.
1: A psychological safety net. Yeah, to me, that's love. That's love. And you say this in your book quite a bit unconditionally, and there's a lot to be said for... Mm. The unconditional love of a parent—it has to be kind of
2: a priori, the case. That's right. And being able to put the needs of someone else first, without control, without manipulation, without mm-hmm. an agenda, without what am I going to get out of this? Mm-hmm. Just pure. It sounds to me like you used
1: Rita's letters to your father as kind of the factual scaffolding for the book, like to. To fact check and get things right. Completely.
2: Rita did not have the kind of psychological armor to combat with my mother. And my mother, as you probably know from the book, would often say, would really lay the guilt on her. I mean, lay the guilt is a Understatement. My mother would call her on the phone and say, Rita, if you love Ariel, you'll come over right now. You know, she would really put her on the spot and really in a cruel way. I mean, there was no holding back. It was, it would make Rita feel as though she was the cause of my suffering when in oh fact that was not accurate at all. You know, um, how twisted is that? I mean, your it mother- was very. Very twisted and disturbing. And then, you know, I think um, Rita would just endure it because she didn't want to lose her connection to me. That's amazing. It would have
1: been so easy for her to just like say, I'm done with this. Right. Who needs it? But do you think somehow deep down your mother was aware that she couldn't give you these things that Rita could give you?
2: She Mm -hmm. was. And I think it was, um, you know, She was aware that that was something that my mother, my mother wanted me to have, but she was also jealous and it felt like a betrayal. So, and that's part of the, you know, when I say she can't control her moods, like that is the part of it that she, she would want what was best for me, but she couldn't tolerate it. So the affection and the love and the attention I gave to Rita felt like a rebuke of her. So it was this vicious
1: circle. She would get on Rita's case for not seeing you enough. Then she would be jealous of Rita. And then she would heap guilt on you for the love and attachment you had
2: for Rita. Uh, and berate Rita for abandoning me. Like, you know, it was total chaos.
1: Has she ever told you why she wrote the letters?
2: She wanted my father to know what was going on. I think that was part of it. Because at that point, Maybe there was still an option for a custody case. And he was a lawyer. And he was... And the the letters, I think, began as kind of as evidence,
1: you know, so that... Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Here's the evidence. This is what happened.
2: I mean, I'm speculating. I think it was both. I think it was, here's the evidence and also her need to not feel so helpless.
1: Do you think that without Rita as a counterweight to the effect your mother was having on you emotionally and psychologically, you'd be much worse off. I really
2: do think that, yeah. I've said to people um, that Rita saved me because without her, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, I really have thought about it a lot and it's not just because of the letters, you know, it wasn't the act of writing the letters. It was a consistency and a nurture Mm -hmm. and that, and, and, and I, and I should say, you know, it, it's never gone away. I mean, I'm now in my fifties, early fifties, and we're still as bonded and close as we've ever been. I'm wondering, she might be the only one who knows this. Do
1: you know why she saved the letters for all those years?
2: Yes, she saves everything. She just she's that person, you know, who really holds on to things that are significant. You know, she's a massive Yankees fan and she has all that memorabilia and she mm.
1: So cuz there's uh so little about Rita online, I did manage to find the following thing that I must share with you. Oh, I'm so uh, excited, which makes me just smile because I think I have this theory that everyone in the world has one object, a tangible object that sums them up as a person. And what I managed to find oh, is this that. letter. I know, is this letter that she wrote to the president of Barkeeper's Friend. Have you seen this? No, Oh, my gosh. It's so wonderful. So uh, it's <laughs> in her handwriting. Let me just read it to you. It's a one page letter written in script. It's it's addressed to the president, barkeeper's friend, gentle people. In my 72 years, I've written f- fan notes to Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris and a few politicians. I've thanked people in the community and armed services for their dedication. Now I write to praise a product. In 1983, we bought brass lamps for our home in Fairfield, Connecticut. Over the years, they got really ugly. I tried another product. No good. Then my brother told me about... This is the best part. Then my brother told me about barkeeper's friend. And then she puts in parentheses, you do need an apostrophe because there's no apostrophe after...
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's the best. She's completely... Yeah.
1: Yeah. She's So she's thorough about the apostrophe. She's polite about the apostrophe. She cannot let the lack of an apostrophe go unremarked. While it took about two hours per lamp, rinsing within one minute means cleaning a small portion at a time. The results were fantastic. It's true. I could not remove all the stains, but see for yourself from the enclosed photograph. Oh God. <laughs> Regards,
2: Rita Waterman. <laughs> that How is... great is this? That is so Rita. I I mean, really, that is so you didn't even have to. There's no question that that speaks volumes about who she is.
1: I had a feeling this letter summed her up. I never, ever do this, but I am so eager to hear her voice. Is it is there any way we could call her and just to say hi and put her on the speakerphone or would she be too shy? Do you mean right now? I mean, right now. Yeah, Um Oh, yes. Well, she would, I mean, I don't know about that. We can try. You can try. (laughs) Oh, but she knows knows you're doing the podcast, right?
2: She knows I'm doing the podcast, but she doesn't know I'm doing it right this second. Good afternoon.
1: Hi, Rita. Um, Are you there?
0: I'm on the line. Honey, your, your name didn't show up. It was some strange name. So I didn't answer, of course. Are you all right, sweetie? I am all right. I am on a podcast with Katie Hassner. Do you remember I told you about the podcast I was doing? Yes, you did tell me. You and I sent you all about you? I've sent you more information than you needed, yes. <laughs> okay, Katie's on the phone
1: with us. Is that, Rita, I hope that's okay, and I don't want to be taking you by surprise, but um, I've just spent the last hour talking to Ariel about... Um the role you played in her life and you were feeling so abstract to me that i felt like i needed to actually just um the the story ariel told of your the way you stepped into her life it was just so moving i felt this need to just hear your voice and and thank you personally for what you did for this little girl
0: uh there are no thanks required and no thanks accepted it is it, it- Sharing my life with, with Ariel has been one of the greatest privileges in, in this seventy eight years I've been on this earth. We grew together, and that's that's all there was to it. And there was no question.
1: I have a question, Rita. I wanted to ask you a question, and that is, do you? I found I've been looking madly online to try to piece together your history a little bit, and um, I found a couple of references to Ms. Magazine. But the very best thing I found was this letter that you wrote to barkeeper's friend. (laughs) (laughs) Barkeeper's friend? Yes. Okay, so this is how crazy the internet is. You wrote a letter in your beautiful handwriting to barkeeper's friend, and you reminded them ever so gently that they did need an apostrophe between the R and the S. (laughs) I have absolutely no recollection of that. And uh, I read it out loud to Ariel and she said, you know, that I said, you know, my guess is that that this sums Rita up. You know, she loves to write letters and she writes letters beautifully. She's a she gently very gently prodded them to fix the apostrophe. <laughs> so you wrote all those letters to Ariel's dad. You gave the letters to Ariel when she was starting to work on the book. Why did you mm-hmm. save them for all those years?
0: I saved them because there was so much going on in her life that I couldn't remember what I thought I wrote to her dad and what I did write to her dad, which is why I put the carbon paper in, so that I wouldn't be repetitive. Uh-huh. So I just went through the carbon a folder.
1: Uh-huh. And there... So you didn't
0: save them with the intention to give them to me? But it wasn't until, well, you remember the note I sent you with the cop, with the letters, mm-hmm. which I said, this may make you laugh, it may make you cry. I don't know how the adult Ariel is going to receive this. Uh, definitely did not make me laugh. <laughs> I know it didn't. I think that, yeah, Katie was just wanting to connect to you and kind of hear how, you know, I, I, I tried to give the sense of how you are, but obviously when you hear someone's voice, it really... Filled
1: it out, and then I think I mentioned to Ariel. Maybe we should call her, and and Ariel at first said, "Oh, that's odd," <laughs> and then Ariel <laughs> said, "Maybe we should." So this has been a this has completed the circle for me.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's absolutely fine. Uh, if it's okay with Ariel, it's okay with me. So that sums it up,
1: right? <laughs> Well, thanks so much, you guys. And Ariel, I I forgot to thank you so much for for talking to me about your soul mother. Oh,
0: it's my
2: pleasure. I wanted to do it because I wanted to be able to really, whenever anybody talks about mothers, even on Mother's Day, I'm always thinking about
0: surrogate mothers and how they really contribute by choice.
1: By choice, exactly. Okay, you guys. Thanks a lot. Bye, Rita.
0: Be good to yourselves and please stay safe, everybody.
1: Okay, you too. Rita, I'm going to
0: hang up and I'm going to call you later, okay?
1: And that's it this week for Our Mothers, Ourselves. Our theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Manchin is our artist-in-residence. Our intern is Rosie Manick. And Alice Hudson is the show's producer. Join us again next week when we'll be talking to Allison O'Quinn, who posted a photo on Facebook with her mother's ashes, and that angry post went completely viral. Please visit us at OurMothersOurselves.com and contribute your word to the Mother Word Cloud. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week, everyone. Stay safe.